The sermon text for today is Genesis 18. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. And the New Testament reading is from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6, the New Testament reading. Here the writer to the Hebrews encourages Christians in this way, saying, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In just a moment, we will consider Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. And when we do, we will notice three things. First of all, that Abraham enjoyed communion with the Lord. Secondly, that the promise concerning a son was restated yet again, but this time so that Sarah could hear it herself with her own ears. And thirdly, that Sarah doubted the Lord and was therefore gently rebuked by him. The story is nicely divided into these three parts, and there is, of course, application that we will make along the way. But, but before we get there, I want to say just a few words about the context of this passage so that we might understand the role that this particular story 
plays in the larger story of Genesis and indeed of all of Scripture. First, I want to look backwards just briefly. And we should remember that this story that we have just been told immediately follows the account of the covenant that was transacted with Abraham, of which circumcision was the sign. This covenant was transacted progressively from Genesis 12 through 17. And in brief, Abraham and all who belonged to him, they were to keep this covenant that God made with them. Uh, to keep it would mean that they would be blessed in the land, and to break it would mean that would, they would be cut off from the land and from the people of God. And remember also that this covenant that was transacted and sealed with the sign of circumcision was founded upon promises. And what were those promises? The Lord promised that Abraham would have many descendants, that he would be given the land of Canaan, that he would be blessed, and that he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Indeed, the Lord would bless Abraham and make his name great so that he would be a blessing. He would bless those who bless Abraham and those who dishonored Abraham he would curse. All of that was communicated in Genesis chapters 12 through 17. The end result was that by the end of Genesis chapter 17, Abraham and his offspring, that is the offspring that would come specifically through Isaac, they were clearly set apart in the world as unique and distinct. They, that is to say, the Hebrew people, from that moment all the way until the arrival of the Christ, belonged uniquely to the Lord. As circumcision was a sign of their uniqueness, among other things. They were set apart unto the Lord from the other nations. They were blessed of God so that they might eventually be a blessing. All of this, of course, would culminate in the arrival of the Messiah. And as we begin to look forward now upon Genesis chapters 18 and 19, here's what I want for you to recognize. The events of Genesis chapters 18 and 19 illustrate the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham and what they would look like in the world. We see an immediate, immediate fulfillment to the promises that have just been made to Abraham in the events of Genesis chapters 18 and 19. In other words... The events that are recorded for us in these two chapters demonstrate to Abraham and to us as we read them that God meant what He said. The Lord was serious about blessing Abraham. He was also serious about Abraham being a blessing to the nations. He was also serious about um, blessing those who blessed Him and cursing those who dishonored Him. Uh, these stories that we are about to encounter, illustrate that, that God would keep His promises, and not just here in these events, but on to the consummation of all things. I, I have used this word before in sermons. I hope that you're not growing tired of it. It's a very important word that communicates an important concept. I do believe that Genesis chapters 18 and 19 are typical. And by typical, I mean that in the small and specific events that are recounted for us here in these two chapters, we find a kind of picture or pattern of what God would do in the world in the future from Abraham's day forward, but on a much larger scale. So then these events demonstrated to Abraham and to us that God could and would keep His promises. And they also established a pattern that would be repeated in different ways on into the future. So let me set the pattern before you in a very direct and succinct manner. And I want you to notice four things about Genesis chapters 18 through 19. One, in Genesis chapters eight, chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, notice that Abraham 
was blessed to have the Lord appear to him and to commune with him. That seems to be the main thing that is communicated here in this text that is before us today. Abraham was truly blessed. He was unique in the world. The Lord appeared to Abraham and sat before him and communed with him. Clearly, this man is blessed of the Lord. There is nothing more blessed than this, than to have a right relationship with God. To know Him and to be known by Him, to have Him as father and friend. And indeed, this episode here in Genesis 18, 1-15, shows that this was the case for Abraham. He was blessed of the Lord. Two, in Genesis 18, verses 16-33, we will see that Abraham was privileged to pray for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I am, of course, now assuming you are somewhat familiar with the narrative here. But the Lord says He is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their great wickedness. But what does Abraham do? He begins to intercede for these cities, that is to say, for the nations. So, illustrated here in this event, we see this concept. Abraham, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to the nations. Here we see his concern for and responsibility to intercede for the nations put on display. Is this the end of the matter? No, but it is a first taste of it. Abraham's blessing to the nations. Now, 3 in Genesis 19, 1-22, we will learn that the Lord rescued Lot from Sodom before he destroyed it. And what does this show? It shows that he would be faithful to preserve his faithful ones who lived in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Indeed, it is true, those allied with Abraham, who had the faith of Abraham, would be blessed along with Abraham. And here we have a picture of that very thing. Lot, who shared the faith of Abraham, was blessed of the Lord, though he lived in the midst of a pagan people. And then four, in Genesis 19, 23-29, we will learn that the Lord did, in fact, destroy Sodom and Gomorrah after he pulled Lot out of it, along with his family. And this shows that not only would the Lord be faithful to bless those who blessed Abraham, but He would also be faithful to do what He said, that is to curse those who dishonored Him. And that is why I say that these stories that we are now beginning to consider are typical. Uh, They are typical of things yet to come from Abraham's day on to the consummation, but they also correspond to the promises that were previously made. God made promises to Abraham and then He almost immediately proves that He will do it in these episodes that are before us. Abraham would be blessed of the Lord and he would be a blessing to the nations. Indeed, those who blessed him would be blessed and those who dishonored him would be cursed. Not only did the Lord make these promises to Abraham, he also proved to him and to us that he could and would do what he has said. As I have already said, the pattern established in the events of Genesis 18 and 19 was typical. This pattern has been and will be repeated again and again throughout the history of the world. It would be repeated in the nation of Israel on a much larger scale. It is being repeated now, and it will be repeated until the consummation of all things with the return of Christ. He will return for His people. He will judge the world. He will make all things new. The message is this, God is faithful. He is faithful. He will surely keep His promises. Not only has He given us His promises, but in His Word we also see a record of His faithfulness. He was faithful to Abraham even immediately after the promises were uttered. So now that we have considered the context of our text today. Let us consider the text itself in three parts. First, in verses 1 through 8, we see that Abraham was blessed to enjoy communion with the Lord. Abraham was blessed to enjoy 
communion with the Lord. We need to think deeply upon these things. What a marvelous blessing this was. In verse 1 we read, And the Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Now this verse here, verse 1, is to be considered as commentary from Moses, who was the author of Genesis. Uh, In other words, Abraham did not know at first that it was the Lord who was visiting him, but the author of Genesis wants the reader to know it from the start, and so he inserts this remark. He gives us this warning. The Lord himself visited Abraham. Uh, The narrative itself, I think, is very clear. When Abraham saw the three men who came to him in the heat of the day, he thought they were but men, for that is what they looked like to him. But Moses wants the reader to know from the outset that it was really the Lord. Notice here it is capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. Uh, This indicates to us who read in the English language that it is the divine name. It is Yahweh, the divine name of the covenant-keeping God uh, that is behind uh, this English word here. It was the Lord Himself, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, the Lord who entered into covenant with Adam, the Lord who entered into covenant with Abraham, who visited Abraham in this instant. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. So we should marinate on this fact for just a moment. When the Lord appeared to Abraham, He came to him in the form of a man. Think about that for just a moment, especially in the broader context of all of Scripture. Long, long ago, when the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, visited Abraham in this instance, He decided to come to him in the form of a man. He could have come in another form. God is not a man. Understand that clearly. He does not have a body. He does not have parts. He is not a passionate God. He is a most pure spirit. He is utterly simple. He could have come again to Abraham in a vision. But here the Lord communed with Abraham in the form of a man. Does this not anticipate, therefore, what God would eventually do in the fullness of time to reconcile His people to Himself through the Christ who is the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. Does this episode therefore not anticipate what would happen on a much larger scale in the future? Now, we must be very careful here. When we speak of the Christ, we are right to say that He was God incarnate. Isn't that the way we speak of Him? He was God incarnate. More specifically, when we speak of the Christ, we confess that He was and is the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very an eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with Him, who made the world, who upholds and governs all things He has made, who, when the fullness of time was come, took upon Him man's nature. That is what He did. He took upon Him man's nature with all of the essential properties and common affirmities thereof, yet without sin, so that two whole Perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person. We are talking about the incarnation of Christ. These two distinct natures, the divine and the human, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. This is what we mean when we say that Christ is God incarnate. 
What we see here in Genesis 18, be very careful to understand this, is not that. It's not the same thing. This is not the incarnation. We could talk about this for some time, but the most important thing to recognize is that this is not the incarnation because this is not permanent. This is not God taking upon Himself man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Nevertheless, we must recognize that the Lord Himself did appear to Abraham in the form of a man in order to commune with him. It was not permanent. It was not that God at this time took upon Himself man's nature. But He did appear to him in the form of a man. And I do believe that this anticipated the coming of the Christ and the incarnation itself, by which the redemption of God's people would be accomplished and our eternal communion with Him secured. It's interesting, isn't it, to see what God did here in the life of Abraham. So in verse 1 we see, or we find, an editorial remark. Abraham did not at first know that one of the three was the Lord, But we know it, and I'm thankful for that. Verse 2 is where the story really begins. There we learn that Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men, they are called, were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. Where do these men come from? We really don't know. The story doesn't tell us. Uh, From Abraham's perspective, they seem to appear out of nowhere, Uh, I think that maybe Abraham dozed off. After all, it was during the heat of the day that all of this happened. It was in the afternoon hours when people tend to feel a little bit sleepy. Uh, Whatever the case, Abraham's eyes were down, and when when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, there were three men standing in front of him. You and I know that these three men were more than mere men, for Moses has already warned us, but Abraham thought that they were mere men. And being the hospitable man that he was, what did Abraham do? He got up and he ran from his tent door. And all of a sudden, the pace of the story really picks up here. He bowed himself down to the earth, verse 3, and he said, O Lord, notice it is not all capitals here, but it is a more generic term being used. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourself under the tree while I bring you a morsel of bread. And you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Notice that Abraham addressed one of the three in particular. Why did he do this? We are not told. Perhaps that one appeared to be the prominent and distinguished one. He appeared to be the leader, and so Abraham addresses him. And notice that Abraham did not call him Lord, all capitals, but Lord. In the Hebrew, Abraham did not call him Yahweh, indicating he did not know it was Yahweh, which was the title that Moses used in verse 1, but Adonai, it is a noun simply meaning Lord or Master, and it's used most frequently in the Old Testament to refer to a human Lord. But sometimes also it is used to refer to divinity. Again, the point is this, Abraham thought that this was a man, probably a very distinguished man, and so he called him Lord or Sir out of politeness. Abraham's reaction to the appearance of these three visitors might seem strange to us, But he was merely being hospitable. That is what he was doing. He was being hospitable to these weary travelers. And it was not uncommon for men to show honor to each other like this in Abraham's day. Hospitality was very important in Abraham's day. 
And it should be in ours as well. I'm afraid that it is a lost gift. It's a lost art. Travelers who traveled long distances on foot were dependent upon the hospitality of others in Abraham's day. These three appeared to have traveled a long distance. They were hot. Can you picture it? We definitely can picture it. Can you imagine uh, traveling in 90 degree plus temperatures on foot? Their feet were dry and dusty. And so Abraham welcomed them. He offered them water to drink. He offered to wash their feet along with a morsel of bread, he says. We should remember that the writer to the Hebrews had this story, along with the story of Lot's hospitality in Genesis 19, which immediately follows this. I think he had this story and that one in mind when he exhorted the Christian, saying, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. What does he say? Unawares. Uh, Here the writer of the Hebrews picks up on this, that Abraham and especially Lot perhaps as the two would then go down, the two who were angels went down. They didn't know who they were showing hospitality to and uh, the writer of the Hebrews is saying we should show hospitality as well, not because we expect the Lord Himself to visit us nor angels to visit us. I think this was a unique occurrence, um, probably not to be repeated. But the point is this, Look what happens when you show hospitality. Good things happen. Great and marvelous things happen when you show hospitality uh, to others. This is to be a characteristic of all Christians. We are to be a hospitable people. We, like Abraham, should be hospitable to others. This is a powerful thing. This is an important thing. God has shown hospitality to us, has He not? God communes with us if we are in Christ Jesus. Communion is a very big part of the life of God's people. God communes with His people. It has been the case from the fall onward. It has been, was the case in the garden even more intimately. Communion is a big deal. And God's people should commune with one another. And even with strangers, we should show hospitality. There is a point of application to be made here. And I will ask you most directly, are you hospitable to others? Are you ready and willing to offer refreshment and encouragement to sojourners in their need? Now please hear me. I I am not suggesting that the Christian should willingly take just anyone into their home. I think that would be very foolish. Discernment is certainly needed, maybe especially in our day. There are many people in this world who are wicked people who would be a danger to you and to your family. You should be very careful before welcoming strangers into your home. This is especially true, I think, for single women, the elderly, and families with young children. You are to be wise and you are to be discerning concerning this issue of hospitality. And neither am I suggesting that all are expected to show hospitality all of the time or in the same way. Some Christians are more gifted than others when it comes to hospitality. The New Testament makes this clear. Some have greater resources so as to be able to share with those in need. And our ability to be hospitable will change as we go through different seasons of life. There are many factors that impact our ability to show hospitality. That needs to be acknowledged. But with those qualifications out of the way, I still ask the simple and direct question... Have you thought about the importance and the power of hospitality? How might you be used of the Lord to bring refreshment 
and encouragement to sojourners who are in need. While it is certainly appropriate for a Christian to show hospitality to a non-Christian, I hope you would agree with me that it is most important for Christians to be hospitable towards one another. Listen to Galatians 6.10, which has this concept within it. Paul writes to the Galatians saying, So then, as we have opportunity, notice that, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And then what does he say? And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Brothers and sisters, are you ready and willing to do good to one another? And notice I say, are you ready and willing? That is intentional. Are you ready and willing? First of all, are you willing? Do you have a heart to care for others, to refresh and encourage the weary traveler? We are all sojourners, aren't we? We are all sojourners. Our hospitality should not be limited only to those who are passing through our city. After all, how many people pass through our city? Not very many. But we should be eager to refresh one another as we travel the dusty and sometimes discouraging roads of the Christian life. And so I begin by asking, are you willing? Do you have a heart for it? Are you on the lookout for opportunities to be hospitable to others? And then I ask, are you ready? To be willing, one must prepare the heart. But to be ready, one must prepare the home. And so I ask you, is your home ready It need not be perfect. I think that is an actual danger to hospitality. The idea that your house has to be perfect. It needs to look like one of those houses you see in a magazine somewhere. That is is a real danger. It puts a real damper upon hospitality. It need not be perfect. And it need not be large or extravagant either. You don't need to have one of those homes that's great for entertaining large groups. But it should be ready to receive others should the opportunity arise. And so I ask you, are you managing your household in such a way that you are able to share with those who are in need? Is your house organized and clean? We're getting practical here, aren't we? Is your house organized and clean? Are your finances in order so that you have a bit left over to share with others? Have you set a bit aside to share with others? That may not be possible for all. I understand that. But for some It is not possible because the money is not managed. And so I ask the question, and what about time? Are you so busy that no time is left for hospitality? One of the things that encourages my heart greatly as a pastor is when I hear that members of this congregation are being hospitable. I love to receive word that so-and-so had so-and-so into their home for a meal and, and for fellowship. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, that is not a little thing. That's a very big thing to do. Those are very powerful moments. I love to hear when it is happening. And I would love to hear that it is happening more and more. And so do you want to have a a positive and powerful impact upon the life of this church? Do you want to have an impact? And I would say, consider, consider hospitality. Consider opening your home to others. Consider inviting others into your home for a meal and for conversation, so as to build up one another in Christ Jesus our Lord. Abraham was clearly willing. Notice he was sitting at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. I think he was actively looking. He knew that it was a hot day. He knew that travelers passed by in that area. And so he's looking for an opportunity to bring someone in so as to refresh them. And he was also ready. He was ready. Now, granted, Abraham was a very wealthy man. 
But look at how well his house was managed. These three guests arrived, and what did he do? He richly provided for their need with great speed and efficiency. The language is very terse here. Uh, What he says, he says quickly, verse 6, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine, fine flour. There's not even a verb in that sentence. Quick, three seas of fine flour. It's a lot of flour. They made a lot of bread in short time. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran into the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young men who prepared it quickly. A whole calf they slaughtered for these visitors. Then he took curds, uh, yogurt, and milk, and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. The point is this. Look at how well Abraham's household was ordered. He was able to prepare a great feast for these travelers in a moment's notice. And it was much more than the morsel of bread and water that he humbly offered to his visitors at first. Then he was just being humble. Stop and let me bring you some water and a morsel of bread. I think he's being humble there, trying to urge them to stay so they wouldn't think they would be a burden upon him. But when he finally brings out the food, it is a great feast. It is a great feast. Again, I ask, is your household in order? Is your life managed well so that showing hospitality is a possibility? Look with me at the end of verse 8. It's there that we read, And he, Abraham, stood by them under the tree while they ate. Evidently, Abraham... Excuse me, eventually Abraham would come to know that it was the Lord. And it is really hard to know when exactly he figured this out. It appears that he knew for sure by the time that he interceded for for Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18.21 and following. Did Abraham know that it was the Lord that he was serving as the 3.8? It's really hard to say. But you and I know it, for Moses has told us that it was the Lord who visited him. And so we have a very interesting picture here, don't we? The Lord ate in the presence of Abraham. The Lord ate in the presence of Abraham. In other words, the Lord communed with him. Again, I will say this is typical. It is a theme that will be repeated throughout the pages of Holy Scripture as a story of redemption unfolds. I'll mention just a few instances here so as to make the point Moses and Aaron, much later on, and the 70 elders of Israel ate and drank before the Lord as the Mosaic Covenant was confirmed with them. You can read that story for yourself in Exodus 24. It's interesting. The the law is given, the covenant is confirmed, and what do Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders do? But they go up on the mountain and they eat before the Lord. What a strange thing to do up there. Why did they eat? Because this idea of communion is very important. What is the whole point of our redemption, of our reconciliation in Christ Jesus, except to bring us into right relationship with God so that we might commune with Him, so that we might have fellowship with Him, so that we might be in a right relationship with Him and be a friend of God. Consider also this, that food offerings were to be offered up to the Lord in the temple under the Mosaic economy. In fact, the priests would... Eat before the Lord each each day. Consider that the disciples ate with Christ as they celebrated the Passover. Consider that we eat before Him each Lord's Day as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What do we do here? Why do we eat and drink something as a part of our worship? What's that about? 
It's bringing this theme along, this important theme in Scripture that, that God is doing something through Abraham and through his seed. And that something has to do with reconciling us to God so that we might sit with God and commune with Him, so that we might eat with Him. This theme will all culminate in the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the Lord makes all things new, which Revelation chapter 19 reveals to us. Again, what do all these stories have in common? It is the Lord communing with His people. There is a message being communicated to Abraham and to us in this narrative that this is what God is up to. This is what God is up to. He is interested in, through Abraham, reconciling a people to Himself so that He might commune with them. It's powerful, isn't it? It's beautiful. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater blessing than to enjoy communion with the Lord. This is what it means to be a blessed man. Blessed is the man who is right with the Lord, whose sins are forgiven. The blessed man is the one who knows the Lord and is known by Him. The blessed man is the one who enjoys communion with God. This story demonstrates that Abraham was truly blessed. The Lord appeared to him and ate before him and with him. And we are blessed if we are in Abraham, if we share in his faith. For by faith our sins are washed away We are made righteous in His sight and we are reconciled to Him by the shed blood of Jesus, the true Son of Abraham and the Son of God. Secondly, in verses 9 through 10, we see that the promise concerning a son was restated so that Sarai, I say Sarai, I'm so used to saying her name that way, she is now Sarah, so that Sarah could hear it with her own ears. Verse 9 They, the three, said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? How did they know her name? I don't know. Maybe this is the first indication that there's something going on here. Where is Sarah your wife? He said, She is in the tent. That should have been obvious, given all the food that was coming out of that tent that they were eating. It was obvious, of course. The Lord knew. Then the Lord said, again, all in capitals, Yahweh, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And notice that Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. All of this and more had been revealed to Abraham before. This is nothing new. And I wonder, did he not tell Sarah? All of these promises were spoken to Abraham. Did he not tell Sarah? I'm sure that he did. But perhaps Sarah was still struggling to believe these promises. In fact, maybe Abraham was praying, Lord, would you do something for her? (laughs) Right? You've given me these promises. I've seen the visions. I've heard your voice. But my wife is struggling. We don't know if Abraham was praying in that way. But the Lord does appear to Abraham and he reiterates these promises in Sarah's hearing. I think she was struggling. The rest of the story reveals that she was. And so here the promise concerning a son is delivered again. But this time in the presence of Sarah. She was listening at the tent door behind him. This application has been made before, but I'll make it again. Do you see how kind the Lord is to come to His people in their weakness to encourage and strengthen their faith? It would have been enough for God to give Abraham His his word, His promises, once. But He appeared to Abraham over and over and over again. Because Abraham was a sojourner, and he struggled in the faith. And here we see A special concern being shown for Sarah, I think. She was struggling inwardly. She was growing older and older, still no child. She thought it might be Ishmael, but no, not Ishmael. 
there would be another son from her womb, Isaac. That promise was made to Abraham. Now the Lord comes and restates it so that Sarah might hear. The Lord is kind to His people. He comes to them to strengthen their faith. He communed with Abraham. Sarah was a witness to it. This He did for Sarah. And though you and I do not need to expect the Lord to appear before us as He did to them, we should know and remember that He does meet with His people as we gather each Lord's Day to commune with Him. And it is here that He feeds His people with His Word and encourages them in the faith. The third and final observation for the sermon today is that Sarah doubted and was gently rebuked by the Lord. We need to emphasize the fact that she doubted and we also need to emphasize the fact of God's gentleness towards her. Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She was past, well past the age of childbearing. So what did Sarah do? She laughed to herself, notice, saying to herself, after I am worn out, and my Lord, notice by the way, who is she referring to there with the word Lord? She is referring to Abraham. And Peter picks up on this when he encourages wives to honor their husbands, saying even Sarah, she, she trusted in God and submitted to Him, and she referred to her husband as Lord. I think there is a word of encouragement here for wives to show honor to their husbands. Um, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure, she asked, to herself. And it is then that the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? How did the Lord know? Well, I think at this time, Abraham is beginning to get it, that these are not just mere men. And he asks this question, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. She did this inwardly. So I guess it is kind of true. She did not laugh. But she laughed to herself. She was afraid. And then the Lord said, no, but you did laugh. He didn't let her off the hook. Notice three things very briefly. One, uh, these were things that Sarah said to herself inwardly, and yet this man knew it. Two, this man knew Sarah's name, though they were strangers to Abraham and Sarah. And three, this man reiterated the promises that the Lord had made to Abraham previously. Uh, So Abraham must have gotten it. The Lord made these promises to me before. How would this man know anything about that? And yet here I'm hearing the same thing. A son, this time next year. I do assume that it was at this point that Abraham knew this was no mere man. Now, Sarah's doubting is a significant part of this passage, uh, this little section here. Her doubt is understandable, isn't it? The fulfillment of these promises must have seemed absolutely impossible to her. Both Sarah and her husband were old and past the age of childbearing. She had been barren her whole life. How could she possibly have a child now? It seemed almost ridiculous to her. But the question that the Lord put to her is a very good one. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he stated the promise again saying, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Is is anything too hard for the Lord? This is a good question for us to put to ourselves, isn't it? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And the answer is certainly no. He is God Most High. He is the Maker of heaven and earth. All things are under His authority, and they are under His care. It is good for us to remember that nothing is too hard for Him when we bring our desires to Him in prayer. We should remember 
That if it is His will, He can do anything. Nothing is too hard for Him. Though it might seem impossible to us, nothing is impossible for Him. But it is especially important to remember that nothing is too hard for Him when we consider His promises, the promises that He has made in His Word, so that we might rest assured that He will do what He has said. Nothing in all of creation is able to thwart His will. He will surely fulfill His promises to us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, for He has promised. He will finish the work He began in us. Why? For He has promised. He will preserve us and bring us safely home, for He has promised. These things He will certainly do, and much more, for He has given us His Word, and His Word will surely stand. Let's bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, work upon our hearts and change our minds so that we would come to see that the most blessed thing of all is to have communion with you. There is nothing greater. There is nothing greater than being in a right relationship with you, having our sins washed away. There is nothing greater than having you as father and friend. This was impossible if we were left to ourselves, but it is possible with you, for you have purpose to provide a Redeemer for us. Lord, even now as we look out upon the world and as we consider our lives, I pray that more and more everything in this world, every other concern, every other pleasure or delight would pale in comparison to the great blessing of knowing you and being known by you. Change our appetites, Lord, so that above all else we desire you and fellowship with you through Christ Jesus, your Son, who lived and died and rose again on our behalf. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you would strengthen their faith, that you would encourage them as they sojourn in this world. May they enjoy communion with you, Lord, and may they also commune with one another well. Bless our fellowship with you and with one another, we pray, so that we might be built up and so that we might bring glory to your name. It's the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.